Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of and may barely recognize. This podcast contains bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky, all presented in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. At the conclusion of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Amelia Earhart. Now let's get started with our story about Amelia Earhart. On July 2, 1937, Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, took off from Lai on the island of New Guinea. Earhart was in the midst of attempting to complete the longest around-the-world flight in aviation history, a quest that began in March in Oakland, California. She was an internationally famous celebrity, achieving stature as the first woman to complete a transatlantic solo flight. Earhart was perceived by the public as the female equivalent of another famous aviator. Charles Lindbergh. Her attempt at an aerial circumnavigation of the globe was followed by admirers across the United States and around the world. She had already completed 22,000 miles of the 29,000-mile flight. Her destination on July 2nd was Howland Island, a tiny Pacific speck 2,500 miles away. The flight, the longest of her journey, would be a challenging navigational feat. Despite successfully communicating with a ship stationed at Howland Island, Earhart, Noonan, and their Lockheed Electra never arrived. A subsequent search by the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard, the most expensive attempted up to that time period, turned up nothing. Although dozens of explanations and conspiracy theories have been analyzed over time, almost 80 years later, Amelia Earhart remains history's most famous missing person. Amelia Earhart was born on July 24, 1897, in Atchison, Kansas. Although her mother came from a wealthy family, her father was an attorney, but also an alcoholic, with an erratic work history that led to an unstable childhood for both Amelia and her sister Muriel. Amelia would attend six high schools before graduating from Hyde Park High School in Chicago. At the same time, her mother finally was able to get control of a trust fund bequeathed by her parents, and Amelia was sent to the Ogon School, a finishing school near Philadelphia. In December 1917, midway through her senior year, Amelia went to visit her sister, who was studying in Toronto. Here she witnessed firsthand some of the disabled victims of World War I, an experience which affected her greatly. So greatly that within weeks she returned to Toronto and began work as a nurse's aide. She worked in this menial position for several months before succumbing to the influenza pandemic that was sweeping across Canada, the U.S., and the globe. Amelia would recover in time to enroll as a pre-medical student at Columbia University in the fall of 1919. She would spend a year at Columbia before deciding that medicine probably wasn't for her. Her parents had relocated to California, and her mother felt that the presence of at least one of her daughters would help keep her reasonably sober husband focused on his currently growing law practice. Amelia agreed to move back to L.A. and live with her parents. Shortly after her arrival, Amelia went with her father to an air show in Long Beach. 
Afterwards, she expressed an interest in experiencing a ride in an airplane, and her father paid for a 10-minute flight in a rickety two-seat biplane over the city of Los Angeles. Within seconds of leaving the ground, Amelia Earhart knew that she wanted to learn to fly. Her parents casually agreed to the idea, not really taking it seriously. They were astonished when Amelia actually signed up for 12 hours of instruction and even more surprised when she informed her father that he would have to pay $500 for the lessons. Ultimately, she agreed to work in her father's office to pay him back. It was December of 1920. She was 23 years old. Amelia divided much of the next few months between the airfield and menial jobs to try and pay for her instruction. She also began to attempt to persuade her mother to lend her the money to buy her own plane, a prototype Kinner Airster, a bright yellow craft she immediately nicknamed the Canary. Between her parents' modest loan and the owner's generous credit terms, she was able to purchase this airplane. She began spending her time receiving flight instruction or working to earn enough money to support her hobby. After the requisite 10 hours, she was able to officially solo and pilot a plane herself. She even officially established a new altitude record for women, a feat that was reported in the local newspapers. In 1924, Amelia's parents' marriage irreparably collapsed and the couple divorced. Her mother decided to relocate to the Boston area where her other daughter was living. Due to her mother's precarious financial situation, Amelia sold her plane, bought a car, and agreed to drive her mother back to New England, an atypical trip at the time. In the fall of 1924, she re-enrolled in Columbia, but only lasted a year before her mother could no longer handle the tuition. Amelia returned to the Boston area, occasionally flying whenever she got the opportunity. She taught and also worked part-time as a social worker, and when Charles Lindbergh became a global sensation in May of 1927, it seemed impossible that her mundane life would someday parallel the celebrity existence of Lucky Lindy. Amelia Earhart's life changed forever when she received a phone call in April of 1928 at Denison House, the settlement house where she worked part-time. A Mr. Hilton H. Rarely was on the line, calling on behalf of a New York publisher, George Putnam. Mr. Rarely explained that Mr. Putnam was interested in having Amelia participate in an upcoming flight across the Atlantic. This flight was sponsored by a Boston socialite by the name of Amy Phipps Guest, who had originally wished to participate but finally decided that the flight was too dangerous. Ms. Guest had recruited Putnam to help publicize the venture, and they both wanted to enlist another girl with the right image. Putnam had published and promoted Charles Lindbergh's bestseller, We, and sensed a female counterpart would be a very bankable publishing commodity. Having written about aviation for a local paper and one of only a few viable aviatresses, Amelia was a logical choice. She was tall, graceful, well-spoken, and even facially resembled Lindbergh. Amelia immediately agreed to participate. The flight would be piloted by Wilmer Stoltz and co-piloted by Lewis Gordon. Amelia Earhart was literally just a passenger, but her presence as the first woman ever to attempt to cross the Atlantic was bound to excite the public and possibly prompt other competitors to try the feat first. Preparations were kept secret. The plane, the specific Fokker trimotor that Richard Byrd had famously flown to the North Pole in 1926, left Boston on June 3, 1928, and flew to Newfoundland to refuel for the longest part of the journey. On June 17th, Stoltz, Gordon, and Amelia headed for Europe. It was a close confidant who broke the news to Amelia's mother and sister as to what she was up to.
She sent a cable from Canada telling them not to worry. They made it as far as Wales, where they refueled again and then proceeded to their final destination, Woolston, Southampton, England. Even before they landed, Amelia's accomplishment was a media sensation, and Amelia's profile as a celebrity would only increase from this moment on. George Putnam had arranged for a New York Times reporter to be transported to Wales to interview the crew. The syndicated story appeared on front pages across the United States. Although Amelia tried to share the attention among all three members of the crew, it was her presence on the flight that created such a media commotion. She was deluged with interview requests, hobnobbed with England's high society, attended a tennis match at Wimbledon, and even bought a plane, an Avro Avion, that Lady Mary Heath had famously flown from South Africa to England. The three aviators returned to the U.S. aboard the SS President Roosevelt, George Putnam keeping Amelia in the public eye by arranging for a ticker tape parade and the receipt by all three aviators of the key to the city of New York. To the occasional skeptic who pointed out that Amelia was merely a passenger on the flight, she quietly made it clear that someday she would attempt to cross the Atlantic by herself. Knowing the time was of the essence, George Putnam sequestered Amelia Earhart in his mansion in Rye, New York, to finish the book about the transatlantic flight. In fact, when Amelia completed the manuscript, she dedicated it to Dorothy Binney Putnam, quote, under whose roof tree this book was written, unquote. The book, entitled 20 Hours, 40 Minutes, was rushed into print. Freed up to get back in the air, Amelia Earhart quickly became the first woman to complete a much-publicized solo transcontinental round-trip flight in her avion. A nationwide lecture tour to promote her book and an appointment to Cosmopolitan as a contributing writer kept Amelia busy through 1928. Publicly, George Putnam was working hard to ensure that Amelia Earhart remained in the public eye. Privately, it was clear that the amount of time he was spending with Amelia was more than just a business relationship. It is also possible that Putnam was aware of his own wife's growing disinterest in their marriage. Dorothy Binney Putnam was the daughter of a wealthy entrepreneur, Edwin Binney, the inventor behind Crayola Crayons. Initially prominent in George's publishing career in terms of acquiring manuscripts, Dorothy's role eventually diminished to the point where the couple eventually grew apart. In fact, it was Dorothy who first recognized the emotional emptiness of her marriage, embarking on an adulterous affair with a 19-year-old. When Amelia took up residence in the couple's Rye Mansion after her return from a book tour, Dorothy moved out, established residency in Reno, Nevada, to be able to file for a divorce, and quickly remarried. Although her second marriage was a disaster, it allowed George Putnam to marry Amelia Earhart. Speculation about this relationship has ranged from considering it practically a business arrangement between two very ambitious people to a close, passionate connection of great depth. While the relationship between Putnam and Earhart soon became publicly official, they would not marry until 1931. Perhaps Amelia was distracted by other domestic concerns. Her father's health deteriorated, and he ultimately died in Los Angeles in September of 1930. While Amelia remained close to her mother and sister, she found the burden of supporting both family members economically to be exasperating and taxing. Any money she made was devoted to helping her family members during the first years of the Great Depression. Her ambivalence towards marriage stemmed from a practically revolutionary attitude towards her professional life and interests. She made it clear that she would continue her aviation career and was not about to fall into a life of domestic tranquility. 
In a very private ceremony on February 7, 1931, George Putnam and Amelia Earhart were finally married. In a typically unusual gesture for the time period, Amelia did not change her name. The honeymoon consisted of the two slipping away briefly to a secret location before the press got wind of what had happened. The bride's mother was not only not present, she was not even aware of when the wedding was to take place. Both Putnam and Earhart immediately went back to work. Amelia had been experimenting with a hybrid aircraft known as an autogyro, a propeller-driven craft that resembled a helicopter. Within weeks in April of 1931, she set a record for height with an official flight at 18,451 feet. In a marketing stunt, George Putnam sold Amelia's aircraft to the Beechnut Chewing Gum Company, who loaned it back and then hired Amelia to serve as a pilot spokesperson, flying promotional flights around the country. It quickly became her objective to fly across the country to Los Angeles, and when another obscure pilot beat her to it, she immediately headed back to the East Coast, thus becoming the first to fly the autogyro on a transcontinental round trip. The trip was not without incident. In Abilene, Texas, her rotor blade hit a landing light, sending glass into a crowd of onlookers. She received an official reprimand from a governmental official. A subsequent crash outside of Detroit later in 1931 was far more serious, wrecking the autogyro, but Amelia was unscathed. She headed for the relative solitude of the couple's home in Rye, New York. While Amelia spent this time period writing a second book, she already was focusing on another long-term objective, a solo transatlantic flight. Clearly, the criticism of her first trip across the Atlantic as merely a passenger was a motivational factor in this ambition. George Putnam's skillful management of her career had established her as the country's most famous female pilot. An unprecedented feat comparable to Charles Lindbergh's 1927 crossing would propel her to an even higher pedestal. However, the flight was not without drawbacks. Other women were openly planning the same accomplishment. If they beat Amelia, the months spent on preparation and sponsorship, financial and otherwise, would be a waste of time. One pilot in particular, Eleanor Smith, had purchased a Lockheed Vega, certainly an aircraft capable of a transatlantic journey. But she crashed in the summer of 1931, and by the time repairs could be made, the climactic conditions of the approaching winter made any crossing impossible. Secretly, the Earhart team set May 20th as the target date for Amelia's flight. This date would be the fifth anniversary of Lindbergh's solo effort, a completely deliberate coincidence on the part of George Putnam, who sought a public connection between the two individuals whenever possible. Although numerous flights with crews had successfully crossed the Atlantic since 1927, no other individual had successfully completed the flight alone. However, because the flight would merely repeat Lindbergh's feet and not break new ground, Amelia was criticized for taking an unjustifiable risk. Other members of the media speculated that under present conditions, a woman, any woman, could never complete such an arduous flight. Amidst this uncertain atmosphere, Amelia Earhart continued to make specific preparations for the challenge. Although Charles Lindbergh took off from Roosevelt Field, Long Island, New York, Amelia wanted to take advantage of every possible edge. Instead, another pilot would fly her Lockheed Vega to Harbor Grace, Newfoundland, Canada. Amelia would take off from there. Lindbergh landed in Paris, and under perfect conditions, Amelia would attempt that as her destination. But if she felt it necessary, she was to land at the earliest European opportunity. As the month of May approached, Amelia worked on flying solely with instruments and her team perused weather charts that initially indicated that a May 20th departure was problematic. 
Suddenly and unexpectedly, the weather cleared enough to allow for an attempt that was unlikely to be possible other than for a short window of time. Amelia quickly departed from Teterboro, New Jersey with team member Bernd Balchin piloting her plane. She would rest as they headed for Newfoundland. Balchin would also serve as a decoy for any media who might observe Amelia. Again, her relatives were not even notified until she left the ground. After a final check of her airplane, Amelia Earhart was ready. It was May 20th, 1932. Despite the heavy load of fuel, the takeoff was perfect and George Putnam was notified by cable. Initially, the flight proceeded without incident as the plane flew effortlessly at 12,000 feet, moonlight illuminating the night sky. Suddenly, in a development that for Amelia was unprecedented, her altimeter failed. Although she was also equipped with a barograph, a device that measures climb and descent, from this point on she would not be able to determine her true height, making instrument flying much more difficult. Shortly thereafter, but only four hours into the flight, the exhaust manifold seam began to separate due to a deteriorating weld. Much like an exhaust pipe separating from a muffler in an automobile, this would cause both noise and vibration. It would also allow for the visual observation of the combustion of fuel and a fiery glow that was normal, but certainly disconcerting. As the separation and vibration worsened, Amelia contemplated returning to Newfoundland, but that would require at least four hours of flight and a landing with relatively full gas tanks. She pressed on. As conditions worsened, Amelia decided to improve visibility by flying above the clouds. Ice on her windshield indicated colder external temperatures that had consequences for the plane's engine. The Lockheed suddenly went into a terrifying tailspin and Amelia subsequently calculated on her barograph that she lost 3,000 feet before being able to gain control of the spinning plane and restore order. She was close enough to the ocean to see whitecaps through the darkness. For the next few hours, she would attempt to find a happy medium between the fog and flying above the clouds without icing up. The first glow of dawn was a welcome sight. As daylight progressed, she flew below the fog, despite the lack of altitude. At an estimated two hours from landfall on the Irish coast, she turned on her reserve gas tank, only to have it start leaking literally on her left shoulder. The manifold seam break had deteriorated to the point where Amelia also began to worry about fumes from leaking fuel causing a fire or even an explosion. Paris was now out of the question. She would land at the first available opportunity. Based on her team's prior weather reports that indicated rain south of her projected flight path, when Amelia ran into storm clouds in late morning, she headed northeast figuring that she was too far south. Although this recalibration almost caused her to miss Ireland altogether, she recounted being relieved to see a fishing boat and decided to circle the boat to make sure someone knew that she had gotten at least this close. The boat sounded its steam whistle in acknowledgement and Amelia Earhart continued on her way. Within minutes, she made landfall at Teelanhead, County Donegal in northwestern Ireland. With no altimeter and no way to navigate around any potential mountains or other natural obstacles, she could not even see through the cloud cover. She needed to land as quickly as possible. Without time to even locate a potential landing strip, she picked out some flat farmland and determined that it was as appropriate as anything she was likely to find. A local farmer actually witnessed her safe landing and came towards her airplane as she shut down the engine and climbed out of the cockpit. Amelia Earhart called out excitedly, Where am I? The farm worker, a man named Danny McCallion, replied without skipping a beat, you're in Gallagher's pasture.
Actually, Amelia Earhart had landed on a farm owned by a William Gallagher in the town of Colmore, five miles from Londonderry, now Derry, Northern Ireland. Gallagher put Amelia into a car and got her to Londonderry, where the news of her landing made its way to the Londonderry Sentinel, the first newspaper to become aware of her historic landing. They quickly relayed the information to newspapers and newsrooms around the world, and a reporter got in touch with a very relieved George Putnam. Amelia Earhart broke several records with her historic flight. She became the first woman and only the second person to fly the Atlantic solo. She became the only person to fly the Atlantic twice. She broke a record for crossing the Atlantic in the shortest time in any direction, and she established the longest nonstop distance flown by a woman. Amelia Earhart's flight was an international sensation. She received congratulatory telegrams from the President of the United States, the British Prime Minister, the Governor of New York, Franklin D. Roosevelt, Charles and Anne Lindbergh, and the U.S. Ambassador to the Court of St. James, Andrew Mellon. She was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross by the U.S. Congress. Her plane was shipped to London and put on display at Selfridge's department store. Her husband met her in Cherbourg, France, and they continued on to great acclaim in Paris. It would be a month before she returned by ship to the city of New York. While Amelia basked in state dinners at the White House and parades across the country, her husband was hired as the chairman of the editorial board at Paramount Pictures, his responsibility to locate literary properties and scripts that could be transformed into film. This meant that George and Amelia would be spending more time on the West Coast. Well into 1934, Amelia settled into making a living off of fame and celebrity, lecturing across the country and even launching a design of clothing sold through Macy's department store, a venture that was met with mixed results. Although George and Amelia made a decent living, maintaining homes on both coasts was very demanding. Perhaps this was why Amelia sold her Lockheed Vega for $7,500 to Philadelphia's Franklin Institute. It would eventually wind up in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, where it is on display today. With the Atlantic conquered, Amelia turned her attention to the Pacific, purchasing a newer customized Lockheed Vega for an attempted flight from Hawaii to the mainland. Despite a fire in Rye in November of 1934 that destroyed much of the house and valuable possessions, Amelia made plans for the unprecedented trans-Pacific flight. Surprisingly, this venture was met with both public and governmental hostility, when news of sponsorship of the flight by the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association became public, the attempt was seen as a publicity stunt in an ongoing battle between the association and the U.S. government over tariffs and quotas related to sugar importation. The press maintained that the route had already been flown and charted. Nothing would be gained by attempting a flight that had already cost the lives of 10 other pilots attempting the same feat. The U.S. Navy also initially attempted to stop the mission by maintaining that Amelia's plane did not have radio equipment that allowed her to communicate with the mainland, an objection that was proven incorrect when a pilot working with Amelia and Putnam named Paul Mance flew the airplane to over 10,000 feet over Hawaii and successfully communicated by radio with operators as far away as Arizona. Despite these temporary obstacles, on January 11, 1935, Amelia in her Vega, loaded with 500 gallons of fuel and 6,000 pounds of aircraft, attempted to take off from Honolulu's Wheeler Field. On a 6,000-foot runway, the plane easily ascended within 3,000 feet, and the most dangerous part of the flight was accomplished. 
Unlike her transatlantic attempt, Amelia Earhart's flight to the mainland was uneventful, and she successfully spoke by two-way radio with her husband, a transmission that was carried live on commercial radio stations. Her final destination was kept a secret, but as she approached the California coast, she announced on radio that she would land at Oakland. By the time she arrived successfully, thousands of people were waiting for her. When asked if this flight was a precursor to an attempt at an aerial circumnavigation, Amelia responded enigmatically, everyone has his dreams. Next, a flight from Mexico City that added the additional angle of Amelia carrying limited edition first day covers festooned with a commemorative stamp issued by the Mexican government. The flight was typically publicized to the extent that when Amelia touched down in Newark, New Jersey, a crowd of over 10,000 people instigated chaos that bordered on a riot. Although Putnam complained publicly, his relentless publicity efforts on Amelia's behalf had made her a national phenomenon. She received an appointment to Purdue University's Department for the Studies of Careers for Women, a veritable break from her typically frantic schedule. Although Amelia dismissed speculation about a global flight, George Putnam began corresponding with Lockheed during this time period about the potential purchase of their latest and most sophisticated aircraft, the Lockheed Electra 10E. A celebrity like Amelia was also caught up in the same type of scandal that the public fixated on, even in the 30s. Paul Mance's wife sued him for divorce, and in the course of the proceedings alleged that Mance and Amelia had engaged in an adulterous relationship. Mance and Amelia did spend a great deal of time together, and Amelia also was frequently unaccompanied by her husband. Mance had a reputation as a womanizer, but there has never been any absolute proof of a relationship. That this allegation would receive any serious scrutiny says more about Amelia's relationship with her husband, a relationship that has frequently been described as one of convenience for the both of them. Mance would remain as Amelia's flight and engineering consultant, an indication that George Putnam either didn't believe an inappropriate relationship had occurred or he didn't care. He already was planning for Amelia's inevitable attempt to fly around the world. Amelia Earhart's position at Purdue was critical to securing the funding to purchase the Lockheed, Several corporations and individuals endowed what was to become known as the Amelia Earhart Fund for Aeronautical Research, and $80,000 was applied toward the purchase of the Lockheed Electra. Years later, when it was alleged that Earhart's mission involved espionage and the payment was actually fronted by the U.S. government, Purdue University was adamant that the funding was legitimate. While George Putnam and Paul Mance worked out the details of the state-of-the-art radio and navigational equipment that was to be installed, Amelia Earhart engaged in a national speaking tour. She took delivery of the Lockheed on July 24, 1936. By mid-1936, George Putnam was openly communicating with Eleanor Roosevelt about State Department logistical support for a proposed global flight. Although he continued to occasionally handle publicity for certain Paramount film releases, he was no longer employed by the company. Most of his efforts concerned the management and promotion of Amelia Earhart's career. Amelia began to personally correspond with President Roosevelt on various logistical aspects of her flight, as well as such specifics as the construction of an airstrip on Howland Island, an uninhabited spot that the U.S. government was attempting to assert sovereignty over in the South Pacific.
because Amelia could land on the island and refuel as opposed to attempting to refuel in the air, and because it was a U.S. possession that would afford her proximity to American naval vessels, this was thought to be the best option for crossing the considerable distance across the Pacific. It was also suggested by Paul Mance that because Howland Island at two miles long and one half mile wide would be a navigational challenge, that Fred Noonan, an experienced navigator who had mapped many of Pan American World Airways' American clipper routes in the Pacific, handle this responsibility. Noonan had left Pan American and was intent on starting a navigational school as his next commercial venture, an endeavor that certainly would be helped by the publicity generated by Amelia's flight. On February 17, 1937, Amelia Earhart held a press conference in New York to announce the around-the-world flight. Initially, the plan was to leave from Oakland and head west, stopping in Honolulu and then proceeding to Howland Island. Amelia was to be accompanied by Mance, Noonan, and Harry Manning, a veteran radio operator and navigator with experience in maritime navigation. All of the men would quickly leave the flight and return by ship, Mance from Honolulu, Noonan from Howland Island, and Manning from Australia. On March 17th, Amelia and her crew left from Oakland for Honolulu and arrived without incident, completing the flight in record time. On March 20th, Amelia Earhart attempted the second leg of the journey from Honolulu to Howland Island. A thousand feet down the runway and about 10 seconds from takeoff, she overcorrected when the right wing appeared to drop, reducing power on the opposite left engine, and the plane lurched out of control in what is referred to as a ground loop. The plane's undercarriage and right wheel were torn off, sparks flying as the bottom of the plane scraped along the runway. Miraculously, despite the presence of leaking fuel, there was no fire and everyone quickly emerged uninjured. But the plane was damaged and would have to be shipped back to the mainland for repairs. Amelia Earhart's reputation as a pilot also suffered with public commentary that she was in over her head and that the entire mission was motivated by economic reward as opposed to any aviation advancement. Within minutes of emerging from the wreck of her airplane, Amelia Earhart stated that she wanted to try again. Neither George Putnam or Amelia Earhart had access to great wealth, and Putnam was already arranging a national lecture tour at $500 apiece. Additionally, after a great success with the first day covers commemorating the Mexico-U.S. solo flight, George Putnam printed up thousands of envelopes to be carried on a global flight, another potential economic windfall. They had also spent a lot of their own money in financing aspects of her flight. Amelia really had no choice but to try again. On May 21st, quietly and without informing Paul Mance, Amelia Earhart, George Putnam, Fred Noonan, and mechanic Bo McNeely left Los Angeles, this time heading east with Miami, the ultimate North American destination. The rationale was that they would have an easier time flying mostly over land and leave the hard navigation for the end of the journey. Miami was the last destination in North America and where George Putnam said his goodbyes to his wife. This was also as far as McNeely would go. Amelia and Noonan would then hug the coast of South America, landing in Venezuela, Suriname, and Fortaleza, Brazil, before heading to Dakar and Senegal from Natal, Brazil, a 1,900-mile transatlantic flight. This last leg would be the first real navigational challenge for both Earhart and Noonan. The flight to Dakar was ultimately successful. Amelia Earhart would land in Senegal and become the first woman to fly from South America to Africa, and also the first to fly across both the North and South Atlantic Ocean. But there was a disturbing element to this section of the mission. The plane did not land at the intended city of Dakar. 
Fred Noonan was only able to navigate using daytime navigational techniques. The Bendix radio direction finder that would have been able to fix on Dakar's direction finding station was not an option. Because it was a state-of-the-art device and Amelia didn't really understand how to use it properly when she began her flight, she presumed that she would learn how to use it through trial and error. But attempts to incorporate the Bendix into navigation had failed to the point where Amelia no longer could rely on it as an option. She would rely on Noonan's more traditional methods of daytime and celestial navigation. Noonan's calculation got them to landfall over Africa, but it was immediately clear that based on Noonan's observation of coastal maps that they were not in the vicinity of Dakar. With only 20 minutes of sunlight left, Amelia knew that there was little civilization south of Dakar and many airports north of their objective. Reasoning that they would hit an airport of some kind, Amelia turned left, figuring that they did not want to be searching in the dark. Within a few moments, they landed at San Louis, then French West Africa, present-day Senegal. They were only 120 miles north of Dakar, but this lack of precision had disturbing implications. It was relatively easy to find an airport somewhere on the coast of French colonial Africa, with numerous outposts of the burgeoning Air France. But how would their methods handle the demanding task of finding a tiny island in the middle of the South Pacific? Earhart and Noonan traversed Africa without further incident. The next leg off of the continent was a 1,400-mile flight from Eritrea to Karachi, a demanding and unprecedented feat. Calcutta, Burma, Thailand, Singapore, Java, present-day Indonesia, and Darwin, Australia were all successfully navigated before the duo's Lockheed Electra successfully landed at Lai, New Guinea on June 29, 1937. Amelia had hoped to return to the mainland U.S. on July 4th, but she still had 7,000 miles left, entirely over the Pacific Ocean. Despite being behind schedule, Amelia delayed the flight for at least a day, removing all but the most essential items to allow for as much fuel as possible, and possibly to provide some rest after a grueling process. Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan understood that the next leg of the flight would most likely be the most challenging. It was the longest, and their destination, Howland Island, an uninhabited outpost with dimensions of two miles by one-half mile. The first challenge would be their takeoff. The plane would be loaded with 1,000 pounds of fuel, the most ever during the mission. This would give them approximately 20 to 21 hours of flight for a journey that was predicted to take at most 18 and a half hours. That meant that Noonan had relatively little cushion in navigating the plane to a specific location. Because of the nature of the destination, Noonan would not even attempt to pinpoint the island's location. Instead, he would choose a direction to the north or south of the island and then head along a line, presuming to at some point intersect Howland. Predicted visibility could be anywhere from 10 to 30 miles, depending on conditions. The U.S. Coast Guard cutter Itasca had been dispatched to provide radio contact and even send up black smoke that would add to the island's visibility. At 10 a.m. local New Guinea time on July 2, 1937, Amelia Earhart taxied her Lockheed Electra 10E to the end of the 3,000-foot grass runway and then lumbered down the crude straightaway that ended with a 25-foot drop into the local Huan Gulf. Observers would later say that when the plane took off, it was so close to the water that the propellers threw spray into the air. But the Electra picked up altitude and quickly disappeared. Fred Noonan would need the stars for celestial navigation until just before the plane reached Howland Island. Calculating a flight of approximately 18 hours dictated Amelia's takeoff time. Much of the flight would take place at night. Although Amelia was scheduled to communicate with Lai every hour at the 20-minute mark, 
it was four hours into the flight before a transmission was successful. She indicated her position and that, quote, everything okay, unquote. But a problem was already confronting Amelia. 25-mile-an-hour headwinds were present, much stronger than predicted, and an issue as far as fuel reserve. Future hourly transmissions indicated no problems, but both pilot and navigator would have understood at Nukumanu Island, approximately 850 miles and a third of their way to Howland, that they would have to evaluate the viability of continuing. They currently would arrive in the vicinity of Howland with virtually no fuel remaining, but a return to Lai meant a significant delay because there was no remaining jet fuel currently available and the airport was ringed on three sides by 12,000-foot mountains and no landing lights, which meant that they would have to wait until daylight. There was also high-altitude mountains on the way back, unlike the way forward, which had no obstacles on the way to Howland. Amelia pushed on hoped for diminishing headwinds, and probably presumed that heading back had as many problems as getting to their destination. At approximately 10 hours into the flight, Amelia sighted a ship in the darkness below. It was the SS Myrtlebank, bound from Auckland to nearby Nauru Island. The ship heard Earhart's brief radio message to the Itasca, quote, a ship in sight ahead, unquote, and attempted to radio back. The Itasca heard the Myrtlebank's attempt to radio Amelia, but apparently she did not because she did not respond. The Myrtlebank position was still about 1,150 miles from Howland Island. That meant that the plane's arrival would be approximately 7 a.m. local time, an hour after sunrise. But the plane was flying at a lower altitude and improving on fuel consumption. By 2 o'clock in the morning, the plane had reached the Gilbert Islands, approximately four hours west of Howland Island, greatly diminishing the issue of fuel consumption. But the sky was partially overcast, making celestial navigation challenging for Noonan. Even so, at 6.14 local time, the Itasca received a radio message stating that they were 200 miles from Howland. The cutter began laying the thick black smokescreen that would provide added visibility. With dawn breaking, the radio room in the Itasca heard Amelia Earhart's voice at its strongest transmission thus far. She notified the ship that she was 100 miles out and asked that they take radio direction finder bearings, but she was not on air long enough to allow for this. Still, the increasing strength of her signal and the fact that she was on schedule to land at an appropriate time was encouraging. Within an hour, the Lockheed should have been very close and possibly even visible. But at 7.42 a.m., they heard an audibly tense Amelia transmit the following message. Quote, K-H-A-Q-Q calling Atasca. We must be on you, but cannot see you. But gas is running low. Been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at altitude 1,000 feet. Unquote. The Itasca continually tried to communicate with Amelia by every possible means on every possible radio frequency. Unfortunately, any radio directional equipment was not compatible with Amelia's Bendix, and she was not staying on the air long enough to allow the ship to get her bearings. Only once did the Itasca communicate in a manner that would be considered two-way. At 7.58, Earhart transmitted, quote, We are circling, but cannot hear you. Go ahead on 7,500, either now or on schedule time, on half hour, unquote. Amelia was attempting to indicate the radio frequency she wanted for transmission. This transmission volume indicated the most powerful measurable. Clearly, the plane was very close. The Itasca responded by sending a series of Morse code A's on frequency 7,500. Amelia would hope to use this radio signal to determine an appropriate direction for the now circling and lost aircraft.
But the maneuver failed. At least they were close enough to update the Itasca at 8 a.m. local time. Quote, K-H-A-Q-Q, calling Itasca. We received your signals, but unable to get a minimum. Please take bearing on us and answer 3105 with voice, unquote. Amelia was hoping to get guidance verbally. For 44 minutes, the Itasca tried every method of communication without a response. Then they finally heard, quote, We are on line of position 157-337. We'll repeat this message on 6210 KCS. Wait, listening on 6210 KCS. We are running north and south. The plane was still attempting to fly south and hoped to spot Howland Island as it flew over. It was the last transmission heard on the Itasca and the last communication ever sent by Amelia Earhart. For Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, the next few agonizing moments must have been filled with unimaginable tension and ultimately fear. Amelia Earhart had been sitting in a 4-foot 6-inch by 4-foot 6-inch cockpit for over 20 hours, unable to move or stretch her limbs. Fred Noonan would have been able to move from the navigation area into the cockpit, but the roar of the engines and the general stress must have ultimately been overwhelming. Eventually, they must have understood that they were minutes away from running out of fuel. When that occurred, the engines would ominously cause the plane to surge noticeably, cutting in and out for a few seconds before shutting down completely. The plane was at an altitude of approximately 1,000 feet, relatively low. Amelia would have hit the water at approximately 60 miles an hour with no shoulder harness and the pointed edge of her Bendix receiver at eye level. If either she or Noonan even survived the crash, they would have to quickly scamper over the fuel tanks and attempt to retrieve the plane's life raft and CO2 cartridge, partially inflate the raft, open the side door of the aircraft, and jump in the water. Similar episodes involving water and a Lockheed Electra had occurred with indications that passengers had approximately eight minutes to evacuate. That was if, and only if, a very difficult ditching process was successful. If Amelia tried to level off the plane too quickly as it rapidly descended, she could completely lose control. If she was too low, she would hit the water at a much faster and dangerous rate. The odds that Amelia or Noonan even survived a crash are very remote. The Itasca had already sent word that Amelia was having difficulty and to prepare for a potential emergency search and rescue. This and subsequent word that Amelia Earhart was missing was front-page news around the world. Initially, George Putnam assumed that this was just another tough spot that would eventually end with a positive outcome, like many other previous flights. The U.S., British, and even Japanese governments implemented a regional maritime search that would eventually involve even the most remote areas of the Gilbert and Marshall Islands. An aircraft from the USS Lexington combed hundreds of thousands of air miles and didn't find a single trace of Amelia Earhart, Fred Noonan, or their plane. Dozens of amateur radio operators along the West Coast reported hearing transmissions from Amelia days after the incident indicating that she was still alive somewhere, but these were debunked as technically impossible. George Putnam, the Roosevelt administration, and the American people ultimately came to the gradual realization that Amelia Earhart was gone. Putnam ultimately had Amelia Earhart declared legally dead in 1939. He would serve in China in World War II, remarry twice after Amelia, and have modest success as a writer until his death in 1950, aged 62. Amelia's mother, Amy, died at the age of 95 in 1962, embittered by what she believed to be George Putnam's mismanagement of Amelia's estate to his own benefit. Amelia's sister, Muriel Earhart Morrissey, died in 1998 at aged 98. 
She had published two books about her sister and lectured extensively about Amelia's life. She was less negative about George Putnam and actually spoke highly of him in his treatment of her after Amelia's disappearance. One could spend an entire podcast analyzing the various theories concerning the whereabouts and demise of Amelia Earhart. The most prevalent were that she survived and lived and died as a castaway on some unknown or remote island location, or that she was involved in espionage and taken prisoner by the Japanese and subsequently executed. Interviews, eyewitness accounts, alleged lookalikes, aircraft parts, bone fragments, clothing, even shoes, have all been used in an attempt to prove that something other than the most obvious solution to the mystery of what happened to Amelia Earhart occurred. Unfortunately for conspiracy theorists and skeptics, there are several inescapable facts that cannot be denied. Amelia Earhart flew most of her final flight at night, deliberately. In fact, it was daylight and the inability to navigate easily that was probably one of the factors that led directly to her inability to find Howland. What could she possibly have observed in the middle of the night on her way to Howland Island that could have any military value four years before any actual hostilities occurred? More importantly, Amelia Earhart certainly made it to within 100 miles of Howland Island, and her voice was clearly heard on the Itasca on the morning of July 2nd. Howland Island is 350 miles away from even the remotest islands that could have afforded a temporary habitat. Amelia would have run out of gas long before she made it that far. Perhaps pieces of aircraft have washed up on other islands. That only underlines that she most likely crashed in the Pacific. Fred Noonan had navigated longer and more difficult unchartered flights in his role with Pan American. What then went wrong with this particular flight? To start with, there was something basic that was not his fault that certainly made navigation more challenging than it should have been, namely that he didn't even have the right destination on the charts that he was using for navigation. Clarence Williams, Amelia's navigational consultant, was using grid coordinates supplied to him by the U.S. Navy. A year before Amelia's flight, the Itasca had ironically been involved in correcting Howland Island's exact geographic coordinates, but these had not yet made their way into the Navy's information or the generally accepted Lippincott's Geographical Dictionary of the World. Amelia and Fred were calculating their route based on a spot that was six miles away from the actual location of Howland Island. In a mission that would require them to spot a two-mile strip of land, visually, with visibility ranging from 10 to 30 miles, that was quite a handicap. The combination of clouds to the northeast of Howland, which the plane certainly encountered in the final minutes of the flight, the strong winds which ate up fuel, and the failure of both means of radio communication, was a combination of bad luck and fate that ended the career of one of the 20th century's most iconoclastic and charismatic women, and began one of the world's most beguiling mysteries. In a letter to her husband, Amelia Earhart addressed the possibility that he might be blamed in the event of her death, but she expressed the same spirit of determination and individualism that had driven her to her fate as she stretched the limits of her ability. It is my responsibility, and mine alone. Thank you for listening to this podcast about Amelia Earhart. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, The Sound of Wings, The Life of Amelia Earhart by Mary S. Lovell, and Amelia Earhart, The Mystery Solved by Elgin and Marie Long. 
There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>